Matthew chapter 27 and three verses here now we'll read together. When they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his hand. They bowed the knee before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Please go back to verse 29 again if you don't mind. They weaved a crown of thorns. Those those thorns may have been two to three and a half inches long. They put it on his head and a reed in his hand. This would have signified a scepter that any king would have had. In a mocking way, they bow before him. He's already been beaten. His back has been opened up. They have mocked him now, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit upon him. They took the reed. And now they are further pounding the plaited thorns, the crown of thorns, onto his head. They weren't just hitting him atop the head, but they were planting that crown deeper into his head. And after they mocked him, the robe had been on him for some time. And when they pulled the robe off, the dried blood now will reopen all of the severed veins and skin. And now they'll put his own clothes back on him, which were now few. And they will lead him away to lay him down and to pound nails into his hands and feet. For a moment I preach about the emblem and everyone speak his name. Come on, say that one more time with me. Would you do that? In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Symbols. Irrespective of beliefs or culture, times, dispensations, countries, lands, ideas, symbols, emblems have always attended to the dealings of humanity. Early symbols of Christianity were etched in marble tile floors and ceilings. They were painted. They weren't the only religion not then or now that uses emblems or symbols. Egypt, in its height, instituted emblems, symbols no less to denote the ideas of both their gods and their rulers, their leaders. Every king from ancient to the neoclassical times wore rings with unique emblems that were often pressed into hot wax to indicate their particular signature. Emblems have boasted a thousand kingdoms and lands, some conquered and some surrendered. 
The open waters were traversed more safely when flags were flown. Those seafaring men communicated with colors to indicate their intentions to every other approaching vessel. Armies fought for lands and the rights of those lands by planting their flags, their emblems, those colors of their homeland in the trodden earth that they wished to claim. Even the early settlers of America beyond the original colonies were given plots of land and they rushed out to plant the family colors into those parcels of land. Universities far and wide wave their flags even today as they garnish the attention of followers and foes. There is something about an emblem. The emblem is a symbol of something bigger than itself. And the truth of such leads me to the testimony of a handful of people some years ago who found themselves caught in a foreign country in the Middle East in need of safety. Having lost their visas and passports, the long and short of it was that they were in danger that, of course, no identification could solve. They wrote of those times, and I quote, The only place we knew that could protect us was the U.S. Embassy, but it was a distance away. Those handful of American travelers, workers, and a few scientists, no less, were racing to find the U.S. Embassy, and they ran. They spent what they described as a long night in the shadows. Somebody among them had a couple Snickers that they passed around. They waited in those dark shadows until they could gain their bearings. One of the younger men among them said, and I quote again, We could finally see the flag flying, but we had to weave our way around other buildings to get there. The flag. With 50 stars and 13 stripes. Was the emblem both then and now of something greater, more powerful than the oppressed land that they were caught in. And they ran. They ran towards that emblem. It was the brightest light that they had ever seen. The shortened story, and for the sake of time, is that they in fact made it to the embassy and they found refuge with the emblem being their guide. The flag, the emblem of our country, embodies the ideas of our nation. The virtues of our land are wrapped up in those colors. It is the symbol of our collective strength, our military our massive Navy vessels and planes and the hundreds of thousands of soldiers standing ready to protect those same ideas. The flag of red, white, and blue, the stars, embodies many things. In it resides a harbor for the world's oppressed. It represents our world-class medical abilities that the citizens abroad run to when they need complex surgeries and treatments. The flag is a safety unlike any place on the planet. Our flag is the symbol for refugees of political oppression the worldwide. That's why over the past many decades, thousands of families strung together homemade rafts and makeshift boats and paddled their way 90 miles in the water from Cuba to Florida. They were seeking refuge from the communistic rule of Fidel Castro. 
Many of them drowned. We don't even know their names. Some of them were thrown off course and are lost forever. But those that came, came because they believed the reward of this land was greater than the risk of the open seas. So they gathered strings and boards and buckets and containers and anything plastic. And they put their life savings on the line to get to this land. And they write in many ways that when they saw the flag waving on our shores, they cried out. They cried because they knew that within the flag was the possibility of freedom and expression. Both speech and dissent are protected by those colors of that flag. It stands unique in the whole world. The flag allows itself the protection of the people who would burn it and stop on it. It is the emblem of the principles sought for and paid for by the death of millions of our men and women here and abroad. But as great as that flag is and may be, there is a greater emblem in this house tonight. It's not a flag and its color is not in plurality. It is the cross of Calvary and its color is blood. Wrapped in the cross is the payment for the whole world. All who ever lived and all who will ever live will rest on the pivot point of the cross of Calvary. The cross where Jesus died is the hinge of history. And those blood-stained beams which were fashioned together made up the instrument of death where the Lamb of God was slain. It is the emblem of our salvation. It was the tool of his death. And I preach about this emblem and the one who spilled his blood on this night. He stepped into the street, whether cobblestone or dirt, I cannot tell. He will walk down a narrow pathway from the city where it bends, and by purpose he'll come upon John the Baptist, his cousin, who is baptizing people in a river. He will dispose ever so briefly of his sandals and wade out into the deeper part where the prophet awaits, notwithstanding John's resistance to baptize him, Jesus will set an example That all the world should follow. It's the fourth scene, if you will. It'll last a little over three years. However, that might be argued, seeing that he was slain before the foundation of the world. Regardless, Jesus has come to embrace a cross. The first scene was his arrival in a city called Bread, a little loaf, Bethlehem. A guiding star will hover, and the men from the east will attend. The second scene is his momentary appearance at the tender age of 12 years. Already he is about his father's business, teaching the wise men in the temple. The third scene is a wedding of some family friend where a premature miracle is sought for by his own mother. She knows that he has the power even though there has been no recorded exercise of such a thing. Then comes the fourth where the lights are dimmed. And he arrives with no fanfare. And no one recognizes that the main character of the whole world is walking among them. Why would they? He looks just like them. The reason of his appearance is greater than the miracles which he will do. There will be many indescribable moments. Wonders wrought by his own hands. But that is not the reason why he came. He will astound teachers and priests alike. Scribes will be left dumbfounded 
as if they know nothing. A man's life's work will be dismantled in mere moments by his explanations of the Old Testament scripture. He's writing another testament and they don't even know it. He's building an emblem and in time he will stain it with the life of his own body. His name will invoke fear for some, doubt for others, rage, compassion, love, and yes, misunderstandings. His name makes devils, demons tremble. The sinner will weep. The saints will rejoice. But even that is a byproduct of his arrival. And with your permission of those mechanics, we are still in the fourth scene. I'll finish them in succession to appease the curious mind. The fifth is his crucifixion and all that it entails. The sixth one is his resurrection. And the seventh one is yet to come. (laughs) And all of it, birthed by reason, summarized in a single word, redemption. Of course, there are other colossal concepts and deeds that lead to it, like obedience and humility and submission and sacrifice. To know these words and what they mean is to know him. Paul would write about him and the knowledge of him when he told the church at Corinth, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech, of wisdom, declared unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross is not what you see in bookstores or paintings. It's not a metal outlay of gold or silver. It's not some pleasantry that graced the necks of the famed or the foolish. It's not a pin that glistens and shines. The cross is truly not a star-studded or a jewel-encrusted emblem. It was an instrument of death, and Jesus, in his flesh, resisted it. I'll quote the verse used by Brother Barber this morning. He quoted the first portion Let me tell you Hebrews 12 and 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and here's the rest of it. Who for the joy was set down before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down the right hand of the throne of God. The cross. Our emblem. It is the peace and all the hope we could ever long for. The cross is not Jesus. But it represents something that only he could hold. It's like our flag. Waving to the sinner. Come nigh. Bringing hope to the saints. I'll cover you. Calling to the lonely and the broken and the wounded and the hurting. Even here tonight. The cross. It was not even unique to Jesus. He was not the only one who died on the cross. The cross was a common tool. For the persecution and execution of thousands of people. And there were thousands of people who died on such instruments of death. Historians tell us that for the sake of wood, which was in short supply in Jerusalem in those days, crosses were used over and over and over again. Perhaps, and the logical thought might dictate, the cross of Jesus had already been used. And after his death, it very well, very well might have been used again by some other criminal. The first criminal, or many before him, died on that same transit. And another, maybe many more after him, followed him and died on it too. Jesus became the sin 
and took upon himself the failings of humanity. And he did it by the way of a common cross. Not a glorious cross. Not a smooth cross. Not a welcoming cross. He endured it. Isaiah saw him hundreds of years prior and he wrote in prophetic form in his own book about Jesus. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid it as it were our faces for him. He is despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we did, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity the sin of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and the sheep before her shears is dumb so he opened not his mouth David saw Jesus he wrote the same words that the Lord used the day that he hung on the cross. David wrote in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted to the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. They gaped upon me with their mouths as raving, roaring lions. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet, he wrote. Psalm twenty-two, seventeen. I tell, I may tell all my bones they look and stare upon me they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture the emblem of our church is not the fancy logo and markings that are crafted on our building it's not the name and our particular font which grace and attend all of our literature and our website and our bulletins that's just a logo that appeals to our modern age the emblem of this house is not a figure or a characteristic. It's not embodied in a person or someone who is charisma. Certainly it's not embodied in me as a temporary manager. A little pastor that comes along, comes and fades. In time, I'll be gone. The emblem of our church is the cross of Calvary. It's the moment when the blood of the perfect Lamb of God was slain. The emblem of our salvation and our hope is found in the life-giving blood of Jesus Christ. Even my words strike me as I know, I foreknow that the small words that I've just said have worried a few of you. I tell you, don't worry because your salvation's not in me. Your salvation is in the blood of the Lamb of God. I did not die for you nor anyone else but Jesus and His blood saved you and restored you and brought you back from nothing to be something. John saw it in the future. He saw the church. He saw the seventh scene of the Lord. 
He saw the church in the last moments of time. And speaking of the church, John wrote in his own revelatory book, he wrote, and I quote from Revelation 12, and they overcame him, meaning the beast. By the blood of the lamb, they overcame him, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. I'll tell you how you're going to be an overcomer. It's the word of your testimony, but before your testimony, it's the blood of the lamb of God. That's how you're going to overcome. And the reason why we have what we have, whatever we have, is because Jesus embraced the cross. The reason why we are here tonight is not crafted out of the convenience or the minds of men. It's not crafted out of some know-how. He offered himself a willing lamb. John said... John wrote rather of Jesus and Jesus said, I laid down my life that I might take it again. Jesus said, no man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He said, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. I'm preaching about the cross tonight. All that I will ever be is because of the cross of Calvary. All that we will ever have is because he suffered and died. Everything that we could ever attain to is because we are covered by the blood. Intellect is not going to redeem us and talent and Ability is not going to be sufficient. Lineage and heritage, who we are related to and what we know, will all pale in the light of our sinful state. We are not redeemed with money. Money can't buy you into heaven. Money can't buy you out of hell. Money can't buy your freedom. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. I love our flag. No one ever sang the national anthem like Whitney Houston. No one ever opened up their mouth and sang the national anthem like her. No one ever sang God bless America. <laughs> Like the great singers that have been born out of the music world. I'm thankful for our flag tonight. I'm thankful that it has enough power for dissent and for praise. I'm thankful for what it represents and for the people who bear it across the world. Things that are done across the world to protect us. I'm thankful for it. But as great as it is, it's only 241 years old and not even that old, not that flag. But what I'm more grateful for is the cross of Calvary. It's the emblem of everything that I'll ever want to be. Whether you know it or not, that flag may disappear. That flag may never be. It may not always be the same flag that we know today. But that cross is the pivot point of all the world. That is the emblem of everything that we will ever have. Let me tell you about the cross. It's greater than religion. It's greater than denomination. It's greater than your thought. It's greater than your philosophy. It's greater than your mind. It's greater than all the things that you possess. The cross of Calvary. And the cross has fallen on hard times because the cross has been smoothed out. The cross has been polished 
It's polished away. Someone has polished away all the blood on it. Someone has polished away all the pain associated to it. Now we want what we want. Now we want to do what we want. We want the cross to fit into our lives. We want the cross just large enough that it appeases us, but not too large. We want it small enough so that it doesn't get in the way. Let me tell you about the cross. The cross is the reason why you're not going to go to hell. The cross is the reason why you are saved. I'll speak to a few folks here. Pardon me if it's a little redundant for you. We live in an incredible nation. Even at our worst times, there is no place in the world like America. Across the waters, you can be arrested for hate speech that's simply found in the Bible. Some have even gone to jail in Canada for preaching things that are in the Bible. But in America, we're still holding on to a little bit of our speech. I think political correctness has its place. I think there's some good in that. But now it has gone to extreme. Political correctness will not stay in politics. It's made its way into our churches. The focus of political correctness was never to, to straighten out or to correct our politics. The focus has a spirit behind it. The intent was to make its way into our churches and to scrub our Bible from everything they find egregious. Don't take refuge or solace in this great country because as the old songwriter said, this world is not my home. If this world is your home, you're going to be sadly disappointed at the rise and fall of every stock market swing. If this world is your home, you'll seek for temporary pleasures. You'll move your family here and there so that you can gain a little bit more. If this world is your home, you'll rise and fall with every victory and every success and every failure. I say to you, as much as I love America and that flag, this is the emblem of my life. That emblem <laughs> transcends all flags, all markings. What concerns me more than anything is how far we've drifted from the cross. The cross is a gory place. The cross is a place of torture. The cross is a place of pain. The cross was the tool and the instrument that Jesus used to sacrifice himself. And he did it so that we could be redeemed. And on the cross, where his blood was spilled, 
every drop of that blood, spelling another moment of death, ticking away like a clock, the blood staining the cross, the dry earth and the rocks soaking it up. Jesus died so that you could be saved. Jesus died on a cross so that you could be redeemed. Because without the blood, without that cross, there is no redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption. When we receive communion, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. When you take that small cup in your hand, It's an emblem, a symbol of his blood that he spilled on Calvary. When you take the small wafer, a little cracker, a little bit of bread, it's to remember his broken body, the body of Jesus Christ. When you put it in your mouth, it doesn't turn into the flesh of Jesus. It's just a remembrance that his body was broken. When you take the cup and you drink the little bit of juice that we prepared and it's poured in those cups, it's for you to remember that the blood of Jesus was spilled for you. I want to read Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth. He wrote these words. He said that when the Lord had given thanks, he broke the bread. He said to his disciples, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul starts to write. Paul said, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he come. And whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Paul wrote it because he wanted to remind us that when we take communion, when we receive communion, we do it as a very solemn moment. It's not a time for us to be filled up. It's not a time for us to come and just join in just because everyone else is doing it. It would be better if your heart's not right not to receive communion tonight than to have a corrupt heart and take communion. And in this house, if you don't receive communion, you're not condemned. No one's looking around. No one's wonders, no one is wondering what's going on in your life. But I admonish you tonight that if you receive communion, let's first examine ourselves before we do it. Let's pray that God would clean out our hearts, our lives, and everything that tries to press against us. We have to pray that God would clean us and purify us. I say this to you, here, Pastor, I say this to you. Church is not a game, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, wait. I'm not just talking to young people. Hear me. Church is not a game where we come to church, put on the church show, and then we do immoral things after the service is over. 
Church is not a game where we kind of clean ourselves on Sunday, but we live abhorrent lives on Friday night. Church is not a game where we come in, but then on Monday we post whatever we want to and put in whatever pictures we want to on Facebook or Instagram, or we press the like button on perverse things. Church, the blood of Jesus, this is not something we toy around with. Hear me. This is not something that, listen, if you've got an addiction, let's pray that God would clean you from that addiction. But don't hide those things in your life thinking that because nobody knows that God doesn't know, he sees everything. Hear me, that emblem right there, it can see far beyond you. And it knows where you are, not for condemnation, but for forgiveness. Uh. See, I'm compelled by the Holy Ghost. I'm compelled. I, I don't really have a choice here because I'm not the one who wrote the book, but I want to say we got to examine ourselves. We need to take a moment and examine ourselves. Before you ever receive communion, examine yourself and say, I've got to be right with God because I'm going to remember his death and the reason why he died, the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Huh. Uh. I don't know about you, I, I'm... I'm sure I'm not... I'm, I know I'm not a millennial, because of my age, I know I'm not a, a generation X or Y, and there's a couple other ones, I'm not sure, Z, <laughs> I don't have a selfie stick. Each time we have a picture taken... I'm wondering if we could crop it a little bit. Photoshop. Um, Sister Jennifer Duncan, Brother James wanted to have a picture with me a week or so ago, a week ago. They said, Pastor, can we have a picture with you? I said, sure. I got on one side and Sister Jennifer did what my wife does. She said, I can't stand here. And I said, well, why can't she? This is not my good side. She said, do you understand that? I said, I understand that very well. Tammy has a good side too. Mm-hmm. Brother James said he thought every side was good, but that's what every fiance would say, right? I mean, he had to say, just say amen, brother. You got six months left. I'm not always happy to see myself. I know I'm not part of the generation that loves to see themselves. The statistics are telling me that most of the pictures on people's phones are the pictures of themselves. Surely we could examine ourselves if we see ourselves all the time. It's not as much anymore, but screensavers now are the picture on your screen. Most of those pictures, the national statistics say, they are of themselves, whoever owns the phone. (laughs) Be interesting that 
We're so quick to take a picture of ourselves, but we never examine ourselves. And taking a photo of yourself is not the same thing as examining yourself. Because on the outside, it doesn't show what's on the inside. And the Lord's concerned with what's on the inside. Because what you have on the inside is going to determine whether or not you're ready. Here, pastor, preach a little bit now. We got to get the inside right. And to get the inside right, we have to examine what's in our heart. And the heart is not always revealed by a selfie. So I say tonight, we're going to take a moment, we're going to examine ourselves. I'm urging you to pray in the month of January, but to go on and pray past that point. But I'm urging you to be involved. I'm praying for a unified church this year. I'm praying for a church that's unified in the spirit, with the same language, with the same passions. I'm praying for a growth, internal growth among us all. We got a lot of things to do this year. There's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of people to reach. There are many Bible studies to teach. There are many mountains we've got to climb. There's a lot of valleys we're going to have to get through this year. Here, Pastor, right now, we're going to have to have the word and we're going to have to have an open heart and we've got to examine our lives. I give honor to all of our military men who've suffered who've gone through all kinds of trouble and tragedy that are represented in our church and men that are not, rep- not here at our church but died for our freedom. And I thank God, however, for all the saints of God who prayed, who covered themselves in the blood. Thank you. But Jesus Christ, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus Christ is the one who gives us the salvation of all things. So whether we are bound or we're free, whether we are blessed or we are in poverty, if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, that's all that matters in this life. Please don't get hung up on success and thinking that a new car or a better job or a better clothes or whatever is going to make you better. It's the blood of Jesus going to save you because someday only the blood is going to matter and count. Only the blood.